I'm Timothy Putnam. I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily lives, so that together you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. Today is going to be a fascinating show. Uh, We're going to be talking about living between extremes, living in the middle. And that can be hard to do. We, our culture swings on a pendulum. We go from one extreme to the other. And when we, when we get rid of one extreme, when we say, oh, I don't like that anymore, we go to the other side of it. And there's, there seems to be a loss of the middle way. And so today we're going to be talking about how to live a holy life in the middle. Uh, we're talking with Peter Epps. Uh, Coming up in the next segment, he is the coordinator of RCIA at St. Francis of Assisi Parish in Oklahoma City. He's a visiting assistant professor of English at Oklahoma State University, and he is a convert from the Baptist corner of Christendom. Uh, We're going to have an interesting conversation because, of course, I come from a different background, and our two backgrounds represent two extremes that can lead us away from living uh, a holy life, living, uh, living a life of holiness that is life-giving and not soul-sucking, right? We've all had our extreme uh, experiences with soul-sucking life, and uh, Christianity is not meant to do that. Christianity, Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have life in abundance, have abundant life. And so uh, if, if Christianity, the practice of Christianity is really just dragging you down and making life difficult, then something's off. Something's not quite right. And so today we're going to talk about living in the middle. Speaking of things that are soul-sucking, tomorrow we have to spring our clocks forward. That's right. You get one less hour of sleep tonight. Yay. Uh, But I want to encourage you, go to sleep a little bit earlier today, make it to Mass, and when we get to the end of this of, of this show today, you'll understand why. It's not making it to Mass just because it's the right thing to do, uh, but there's something that we receive in Mass that specifically on these days when we're running a little ragged, we really need. We need the graces of God that we receive in the sacrament of the Eucharist. And so here in this year of mercy, uh, I want to encourage you, come and make use of the graces of God, of the mercy of God that's given to you through that Eucharist. Uh, don't be that thing, like the joke said on Facebook I saw today. Do you know what? This is, you know, it's the season of Lent, so church services are a little bit different. You know what happens after the recessional, the recessional hymn this week in Mass, right? All the people who forgot to set their clocks show up, <laughs> right? Uh, don't be that person. No, you need to make it there. Uh, not because it's uh, required, not because it's the right thing to do, not because uh, someone's going to check up on you, but because we need what Mass offers us. So uh, that's just my encouragement today. We're going to start off here, as always, with a little bit of Scripture, with a little bit of prayer, and with a beautiful reading from St. Leo the Great. Lord, guide us in your gentle mercy, for left to ourselves we cannot do your will. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Today, for the sake of time, we're only going to do our gospel reading 
uh, from the day. But I encourage you, you know, if you are looking for a way to get into Scripture that's that's maybe bite-sized, maybe easier to get to, you know, you open up the Bible, it's a big book, uh, and even if you say, well, I'm going to read a specific book of the Bible, even that can be daunting because it just goes on and on and on. Uh, I want to encourage you, a really simple way is to read the Mass readings for the day. And uh, I get to those through the USCCB website, usccb.org. And then over in the uh, right-hand corner, about halfway down, there's a little calendar, and uh, you click on whatever day it is, and that gives you the day's readings. And it takes maybe 10 minutes to read, maybe. If, If you're a slow reader, it takes 10 minutes to read. And that's a way that you can really begin to, uh, to give yourself a diet of Scripture. Now, here's the amazing thing about when you do that. When you begin to read Scripture uh, on that daily basis, or even if you, you get to it maybe twice a week, uh, then when you hit those times of difficulty that come against us every week, everyone is going to have that time where uh, life gets a little frustrating. Uh, you'll find that these little phrases that you've read throughout the week as you've been eating the Scripture, right, as you've been uh, digesting that Scripture, it's going to come back up, and you're going to be reminded that God's going to use that uh, that moment that you spent in Scripture, uh, not necessarily at that moment. It may feel really boring at that moment and, and difficult to get through. Uh, oh, man, I'm reading this uh, really antiquated language again. and blah, blah, blah. But I tell you what, it's going to bear fruit later, right? It's going to give you in that moment of uh, when you're exhausted and you're frustrated and one more thing happens, it's going to give you uh, some strength. There's going to be that reminder. It's going to give uh, give a vocabulary to you and God is going to make use of that to remind you of very important things. So I encourage you to spend time uh, reading in the scripture. But today, as I was reading through today's scriptures, this one really stood out to me specifically in the context of what we're going to be talking about today, about living that holy life. Uh, and this comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Some in the crowd who heard these words of Jesus said, This is truly the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But others said, The Christ won't come from Galilee, will he? Doesn't the scripture say that Christ will be of David's family and come from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them even wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hands on him. So the guards went to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why did you not bring him in? The guards answered, never before has anyone spoken like this man. So the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, one of their members who had come to him earlier, said to them, Does our law condemn a man before it first hears him and finds out what he is doing? They answered him and said, You are not from Galilee also, are you? Look and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And each went to his own house. That reading comes from the Gospel of John chapter 7, and I think that it's really important for us because of this picture of what the Pharisees uh, and chief priests have said. They've said, uh, first of all, they used uh, they used ridicule. You're not from Galilee also, are you? That's like uh, uh, saying you're not from the backwoods, are you, right? It's 
Galilee is, you know, if, if they had had comedians then, there would have been a guy who said, you know, you're from Galilee, if you, you know, that whole, you know, you're a redneck thing. Galilee was backwater. And, and then they look and said, look and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So here they are, they're ridiculing those people uh, who are even remotely interested or curious about Jesus so that they can discredit them and then go about their business. Now, here's the thing. I think that we do this same thing to a certain extent. Uh, we look at um, we look at these messages from God and say, uh, well, surely, surely no good can come from talk radio, right? Surely uh, no profit arises from name your place, right? And we dismiss any message out of hand that comes from a place where we least expect it. But Christ comes to us in unexpected ways, right? God, the, the creator of the universe, became a helpless infant. First of all, he gestated in the womb for nine months. That in and of itself is amazing. And then when he was born, he was born in the most humble of circumstances, born in a manger, in a, in a, uh, a stable, right? And then, then we have this person who comes from the backwater, right? The, the redneck land of Galilee. And then even more than that, uh, here we have a, a God who was crucified, a dead God, right? A God who died. Uh, now, of course, we believe that Christ rose from the dead, but all of these things are humiliations that God willingly took on so that he could restore us to himself. And today, God still comes to us in unexpected ways. God can come to us through our children uh, when our children will say something that convicts our hearts. And our first inclination is to say, you're just a kid. What do you know? Stay out of my business, right? <laughs> uh, and yet God comes to us in these unexpected ways. And we have to be willing to open our ears and open our eyes. And before just dismissing them, look for the truth in them. Maybe, maybe these things, maybe the annoying coworker is just being an annoying coworker and there's nothing to it. But maybe God's trying to tell us something through what they just did, right? Am I accepting the gospel from all corners? Or am I dismissing the, the outreached arm of the mercy of God simply because I don't like the source? And that's an uncomfortable question to deal with uh, this Lent as we're asking ourselves the question of how, how we're doing, how our relationship with God is really going, and, and whether what we have with God can really be called a relationship. That's going to be part of today's show. Are we doing things just because they're the right thing to do, or are we doing them because we really do want to have a connection to the divine, a connection to God? So looking at living this middle way of holiness, here's a beautiful sermon that illustrates that from St. Leo the Great on contemplating the Lord's passion. True reverence for the Lord's passion means fixing the eyes of our heart on Jesus crucified and recognizing in him our own humanity. The earth, our earthly nature, should tremble at the suffering of its Redeemer. The rocks, the hearts of unbelievers, should burst asunder. The dead, imprisoned in the tombs of their mortality, should come forth, the mass of stones now ripped apart. Foreshadowings of the future resurrection should appear in the holy city, the Church of God. What is to happen to our bodies should now take place in our hearts. No one, however weak, is denied a share in the victory of the cross. No one is beyond the help of the prayer of Christ. 
His prayer brought benefit to the multitudes that raged against him. How much more does it bring to those who turn to him in repentance? Ignorance has been destroyed. Obstinacy has been overcome. The sacred blood of Christ has quenched the flaming sword that barred access to the tree of life. The age-old night of sin has given place to the true light. The Christian people are invited to share the riches of paradise. All who have been reborn have the way open before them to return to their native land from which they've been exiled. Unless indeed they close off for themselves the path that could be opened before the faith of a thief. The business of this life should not preoccupy us with its anxiety and pride so that we no longer strive with all the love of our heart to be like our Redeemer and to follow his example. Everything that he did or suffered was for our salvation. He wanted his body to share the goodness of its head. First of all, in taking our human nature while remaining God so that the word became man, he left no member of the human race with the unbeliever accepted without a share in his mercy. Who does not share a common nature with Christ if he has welcomed Christ, who took our nature and is reborn in the spirit through whom Christ was conceived? Again, who cannot recognize Christ in his own infirmities? Who would not recognize that Christ's eating and sleeping, his sadness and his shedding of tears of love are the marks of the nature of a slave? It was this nature of a slave that had to be healed of its ancient wounds and cleansed of the defilement of sin. For that reason, the only begotten Son of God became also the Son of Man. He was to have both the reality of a human nature and the fullness of the Godhead. The body that lay lifeless in the tomb is ours. The body that rose again on the third day is ours. The body that ascended above all the heights of heaven to the right hand of the Father's glory is ours. If then we walk in the way of his commandments and are not ashamed to acknowledge the price he paid for our salvation in a lowly body, we too are to rise to share his glory. The promise he made will be fulfilled in the sight of all. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I too will acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. That reading comes from St. Leo the Great on contemplating the Lord's passion. Lots more to talk about today on the show. We're going to be talking with Peter Epps in just a moment about walking between the extremes, living a life of holiness. Join this conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. We'll be right back. After this. Welcome back to Outside the Walls. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Thanks for sticking around through the break. Oh, I think we've got a fun show today. Uh, We're talking with Peter Epps. He is the uh, coordinator of RCIA at St. Francis of Assisi Parish in Oklahoma City. He's also a visiting assistant professor. i got to get that right because associate nurse and assistant are close in terminology and sound, but very different in meaning. Visiting assistant professor of English at uh, Oklahoma State University. And is a convert from the Baptist corner of Christendom. I wanted him specifically today because uh, I come from uh, the the Wesleyan Arminian side of Christendom, and we have very different uh, backgrounds of theology. And that difference in the theology of our former traditions is going to help us in our conversation today about living a holy life 
between the extremes that those traditions can often lead to. Peter Epps, thank you for being on the show today. Good to do it. It's fun. All right. Okay, so what we're talking about today is walking the fine line. There are two temptations, I think, in, in trying to live a holy life. Right. The, right. Over the last several weeks, we talked about, uh, talk, of course, it's Lent. So we talked about fasting, right? And fasting is uh, we learn what we're really hungry for when we fast. Uh, we talked about almsgiving, and that's we learn what we really value when we give our material goods and our resources and our energies away. And we talked about uh, praying, and praying is when we connect with God and we see things as they really are. We see things as he sees them. Then we talked about confession last week. We talked with uh, Father Alan Carter out of Lexington. Uh, and through all of this introspection of the season of Lent, we see where we've fallen short, right? And so then we have confession. We talked about that. If you missed any of those episodes, you can catch them on our podcast over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Uh, go to that right-hand sidebar there. Down at the bottom, you can find the links to subscribe to that podcast. You can catch up on all your missed episodes, no problem. Uh, but today we're going from that train of thought into, okay, now we want to live a somewhat holy life. And there are two temptations here. One, and this comes from my tradition, my uh theological background is to be too scrupulous. I need to be holy and look, look how much I'm failing to be holy. Right. Uh, and so right. I need to work harder. You know, the sign of spiritual life was, uh, and of perfection is that you had your daily Bible time and you spent like five hours a day in prayer. And, uh, you, I just did don't, you, I don't live up to that. Did you as a child have the song, uh, read your Bible, pray every day. Every, no, no. And you'll grow, grow, grow. Oh man, you need to finish and if you that. Don't, you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. Oh yeah, children's action songs. We grew up on that stuff. Oh okay. wow. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. So the the two kind of the two kind of schools of thought out there uh, in the Protestant world, and I think that we see them seep into our Catholicism sometimes, uh, were those people who broke away through Luther, who rejected uh, a good portion, all of works. And so they lean towards the idea of presumption, that God's grace is just going to cover everything, and and I right. am completely uh, made perfect in Christ, and I can just continue as I am. And then you have those that right. came through the Anglican branch, which is where I was, who they're like, oh, well, we just don't like the Pope, but we like everything else. Uh <laughs> And so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep on this this rigorous uh, works so that I can make myself acceptable, uh, and so we have these two temptations: the one to to rigorism and to scrupulosity. Scrupulosity meaning I'm always thinking that I'm not doing enough, uh, mm -hmm. and, and then the other side of it is leaning to presumption and laxity that says. Oh, well, you know, Jesus loves everybody and he's going to overlook all my faults. Uh, and so talk to me a little bit about your experience growing up and maybe mm -hmm. maybe not even specifically your experience, but that in your tradition of those uh, who experienced that laxity and that that idea of, uh, well, I'm just going to presume upon the grace of God. Right. Well, I mean, it's pretty famous that a basic part of most Baptist teaching is the idea that's usually phrased once saved, always saved, right? Mm -hmm. It's what Calvin would have called the perseverance of the saints, 
And it's one of the ideas that sprang out of the the Anabaptist and even kind of per, stuck around in a lot of the Calvinist side of the Reformation. And the idea was that the work of God is not only perfect and definitely going to achieve its result, that God's grace is not just effective and his promises aren't just things he's going to keep, but that in fact, there's some point in my life when I really become sure that I'm saved. And that mm -hmm. assurance is this extra kind of gift from God. And that once I have that assurance, there's like no chance at all that I could ever possibly discover that I'm separated from God. There's no, there's nothing at all that could, that could possibly do that. And the classic place to go for that is like Romans 12, right? What will separate us from the love of God? Right. Right. Because God's love is more powerful than pretty much anything else. Mm -hmm. And yet we all know that there's this reality of sin too, mm -hmm. right? That we do in fact see people who seem to be really called by God, doing things that are, are fruits of, you know, God's work in their lives, uh, then fall into serious sin, and, and they can end up pretty far from God. And what do you say to that person? Um, in my tradition, the problem was that there's nothing to say to that person except you have to find your way in your own head back to that thing you believed once. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that can be done to to call them back. So you end up in this cut. This there's no there's no method for recovering. One of the blessings of the Catholic tradition is that there's always reconciliation. Right. There's always coming back to Christ. We're always saying the same thing to everyone, no matter where they find themselves subjectively, in their own experience of the faith. We're always saying the same thing, which is come back to Christ. He's always here. The sacraments are always assurances that he is in fact working in you. Just come receive them. <laughs> right. And there's this difference there because it's not all in your head. It's not all in your memory. You're not trying to go back to this thing you remembered once. Mm -hmm. And you're not always fighting against the other extreme that you're talking about too, antinomianism, right? Oh, no, there's the a big classic, term. The classic Anabaptist mistake, right? Antinomianism, the idea that if God really did once for all rescue me, then I absolutely do not have to worry about what I do with my life ever. And there aren't that many people who teach that because most people have better common sense than that. Right. But there are a lot of people's theology would lead an unsuspecting person to think that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, God saved me. And I prayed that prayer and I went down and I knelt there. So what does it right. matter what I do? I know that I was saved. So. Right. And it's a, there's this absolute separation between the idea of somehow getting saved. This right. event that happens in heaven that has nothing to do with my life and all of the things that God says he wants to do in my life. And this, this, this separation grew up in part of the Reformation and it's just, it's terribly confusing. Right. I think well, is the worst thing I can say about it. <laughs> here's, here's a sign of that confusing nature. You know, I, I, I was in a kind of a charismatic area in the Methodist right. church. And so I, I heard this kind of thing a lot that all you have to do is pray the prayer and you'll be saved, right? Right. And then in the in the Baptist tradition, I've heard lots of my Baptist friends say, "Oh, well, that person's not living a, a righteous life. They were never saved." Okay, but they went forward and right. they prayed the prayer, and so which is it? You know, if <laughs> exactly. if all I have to do is pray the prayer and I'm saved, and yet you're saying that that person's not living holy, and so they weren't saved. How yeah. do how do we come? You can't get there from here. 
right? Well, right, and and we agonize about this internally, right? And if you sit in a Sunday school class and this covenant comes up, right, this just goes back and forth forever because it's very clear <laughs> that the experience of Christians in the church is that there are in fact people who really do seem by all external judgment and even by their own experience to have been true believers who end up spending some time or we hope it doesn't happen that often but sometimes it seems the rest of their lives mm -hmm. completely away from god completely separated from that life of god yeah. and uh it what do you do with that well the simple solution right i i would i never i myself i personally never liked in my adult life i never liked the formulation once saved always saved because i couldn't see how it wasn't ever going to be antinomian right so i would always say what you were just saying i would say not saved never saved <laughs> that was that was my backup position if if they aren't saved now they never were um which is i, I think a tiny bit closer but you can see how it's kind of an awkward Mm -hmm. effort to rationalize something that, that's just not going to work out in life. You know, this, um, one of the things I love in the Catholic tradition is the, the, the breaking out, the expounding of right. the term salvation, that we separate right. out justification from sanctification, right? That you can be justified, that, that God can come and, and raise you back into right relationship, but you never sanctify your life, Right. Or you don't get far in that sanctification. That comes from, you know, just that, even the parable of the seeds where the sower throws out the seeds and which is the word of God. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes, I think, right. out of the gospel of Luke, uh, lands on the, the rocky soil and it springs up quickly because uh, the, the, shall, the, the soil is there and the, the, everything the plant needs is there. But then it doesn't have a way to put roots down and withers away. And I think that that, that can be very indicative of a person who... Uh, experiences justification, but doesn't have the uh, the discipline to spend time to be sanctified. Well, right, and I mean the the life of sanctification, right, is just the, is is the life of the sacraments, right? It's the life of God being poured into us and us being caught up into that life, right? The, which is also the life of the body of Christ. And when we choke that off, then we also we choke off the grace that justifies because justification right it has on the one hand that sense that because of the uh, infinite and unsurpassed merits of Christ and His passion and His suffering uh, and and all of the work He's done for us and what He intends to do in us, God gives us full credit on His account, mm -hmm. but He doesn't do that without at the same time and already intending to make us like him, to make us fit to be friends of God, to use Thomas Aquinas's beautiful formulation that is nowhere near as cheap as it sounds. Uh, to be friends of God is a really big thing, and he's determined to make us able to do that. So if we separate ourselves from the work of sanctification, we're also cutting ourselves off from justifying grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we're going to talk about this more just on the other side of the break. We're talking with Peter Epps, coordinator of RCIA at St. Francis of Assisi in Oklahoma City, and much more. Oh, join our conversation over on Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Tell us about your journey into the Catholic Church. What's your position? We'll be right back right after this.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Thanks for sticking around. Got a great show today. We're talking with Peter Epps, coordinator of RCIA at St. Francis of Assisi in Oklahoma City, visiting assistant professor of English at OSU. So we, you know we're going to have some fun with language and definition. Uh, and a, a convert from the Baptist corner of Christendom, and not just any Baptist corner, but independent Baptist corner. Talk to us, uh, for those who are unaware, about the differences between what people associate with Baptist and what the reality of independent Baptist is. Almost everyone in your listenership probably thinks of Southern Baptists when they think of, of, of Baptists. Mm-hmm. I, I like to joke, and this is kind of a, just a joke, but I like to joke that where I grew up, the Southern Baptists were those liberals across town. Right. Um there was a, in my hometown in Illinois. There was a Southern Baptist church that was on the other side of town. I, I don't know enough about them. I honestly know if they were liberals. Independent Baptists are called independent because they think the idea of denominations is automatic. If you have a seminary, it's automatically a threat to the authentic faith of the church. It's all congregational rule, and when you send people off to seminary, they end up with ideas that are different from the congregations that call them. So what, now, ironically, what does a pastor do then? What's that? What does a pastor well, do then? It goes to Bible college, but we don't call it seminary. Okay, okay. Just You see, this is the way it is with Christian things. You can get rid of an idea because you don't like one version of it, and you just have to invent your own version. It happens over and over and over. You know, if you don't like the idea of people going to confession and uh, coming forward to receive sacraments, then you end up with 100 verses of just as I am at an altar call. (laughs) You have to reinvent all the parts of it that you can handle because you got rid of something that was real. And reality always comes back. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the, the far side of uh-huh. uh, the, the temptation to just presume upon the grace of God. God's grace covered everything. Uh, and right. so and this is often called, uh, oh, you know what? You're the English professor. Give me the term that, that God's righteousness is imputed to us. And right. so now we, we just ride on the coattails of God's righteousness. Yeah, it's forensic justification, strictly forensic justification. It teaches that how God's grace makes us right with God in terms of salvation itself is strictly a matter of how God writes it down in the the courtroom or how God writes it down in the ledger in heaven, that that's all that we're talking about when we talk about getting saved. And everything else is nice stuff God does for us, too. And that separation is just devastating. Now, we, we bring this up partially because I have met a lot of Catholics in my day uh, who, who really, the theology that they hold and the beliefs that they hold sound remarkably like the, the various Protestant denominations I, I've been around. And part of that's because I think in Catholicism, we've tried so hard to appear normal and mainstream that uh, a lot of our uniquely Catholic things in our identity have been lost. And so people begin to grab these pieces of theology. And so maybe you recognize in yourself uh, that that picture of justification, that, well, God wrote it down in the book, and so I'm saved. But I want you to go all the way back to the book of Genesis for a moment. Think about mm-hmm. when, when the story of creation, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and he 
spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And so God isn't really satisfied in just writing down and saying, oh, well, okay, I, I'm going to look at Jesus and say, you're okay, you, now you're holy. No, when God speaks, uh, you are holy. In the same way he speaks, let there be light. It begins right. to affect a change. That's right. It's impossible for God to say something and it not begin to be brought into being. Right. And, and so as he is saying to you, you are holy. Uh, as you are, even as you're struggling with these uh, ongoing sins, as, as you hear the, the voice of God calling you to holiness, he is beginning to affect change in you that is making you holy, not just, oh, well, I'm going to ignore your bad stuff and I'm just going to look at Jesus and say, you're okay. Right. Now, for me, uh, and you know a little bit about Arminianism as well. Arminianism oh, sure. is uh, the name of a specific kind of theology that came from a guy named Arminius. Uh, and of course, then I was in the Methodist Church, which came from Wesleyan theology, because it's based on a guy named John Wesley. And earlier, we were talking about Calvinism because it came from a guy named, uh, guess what? Calvin. John Calvin. Right? And just so you know, Catholicism is not named after a guy named Catholic. <laughs> Right. We, we, we say that this is the church that Jesus founded as he gave his authority to his apostles. Uh, and yeah. there's a lot to that. And it's a big claim. But I, I encourage you, if that's not the case, find the person who started it. If it's not Christ <laughs> through the authority of his apostles, uh, I can tell you the founder of every other church. Right. Find yeah. me the one who started this one. So. That's just a little challenge. And it's also an encouragement to you who are in the Catholic faith that, that this is a unique and important place to be. Now, for my side of things, on that Wesleyan Arminian side, uh, there was this sense of uh, you have to be holy. In fact, John Wesley preached a sermon called On Christian Perfection. And if you want to go beat yourself up a little bit, you go read that. Uh, because there's this idea that I'm not allowed to do anything wrong. And because we're all called to holiness and because there's this belief in that Methodist tradition that I came from, that uh, you can be completely perfect on earth, right? Because we have that belief in that tradition. Then, and yet there's no sacrament of confession. There's no ability. And, and as soon as you go and uh, and confide in someone and ask for spiritual direction from someone and they see that you are not perfect, oh my goodness, right? Then you're doing something wrong. You need to work harder. You need to, you need to read your Bible and pray every day and not just in the song way, but like, you know, John Wesley right. got up at 4 a.m. every morning and prayed for three hours. What's your excuse? I'm like, well, I have kids. Yeah. Um, and so there's this, there's this real sense of inadequacy uh, that can creep in. And, yeah. and so in the Catholic church, we call this scrupulosity and we see it when someone says, Oh, I missed, uh, I missed one of those extra prayers, uh, of three lines at the end of my novena. I have to start over because I did it wrong. Right. right? right. Or, um, I need to make sure that I pray all the, all the little additional prayers that have been added to the rosary or I did it wrong, and then God won't hear me, right? Right. And I so mean, it's commendable to have a devotion right. that makes you want to try to really do a lot of make make sacrifices, make acts of reparation, and to do things right. That's commendable. But when you feel like 
the ongoing salvation of your soul depends on not missing things that God didn't say were grave matter. Right. <laughs> then. <laughs> well, and, and and even beyond that, the idea of, of devotion is something that is uh, that grows out of our spiritual life. It's not the sum of our spiritual life, right? That's our right. spiritual life lies in the relationship that we have with God the Father. It, and, and here we are in the year of mercy, our loving God the Father. Now, that, that love is apparent. I love my children. I still expect them to behave at the table mm-hmm. in an appropriate manner. I still expect them to have proper etiquette uh, when we go to Mass, right? And that doesn't mean that I don't love my children, uh, but I expect things from them. And God the Father loves us, and yet He still expects things from us. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's not a threat. Well, if you love me, it's, it's a statement right. of fact that out of our love for Christ, we fulfill those things that Christ has, has given us. Love one another as I have loved you, right? Uh, right. And so here we have these two extremes of, well, I don't have to worry about anything because right. Jesus covered it all. And the other extreme of, oh, man, I've got to be absolutely perfect. And if I mess up, if I, uh, if I have a particle of food that was lodged in my teeth and it comes out, but during my hour fast before mass, oh my goodness, both right. of those are problematic. Neither of those are authentic Catholic, uh, life or theology. They both leave you at a place where you end up, you, you just, the pendulum swings back and forth and it swings wider and wider between the idea that you you give up on God or God has given up on you mm-hmm. on the one hand and you just walk away from it and say, well, whatever, I prayed a prayer, man. Right. Uh, or on the other hand, where it becomes this insupportable every day, I have to invent the world. I have to come up with enough faith to believe that God loves me. Mm-hmm. And it, God just doesn't make it that, that hard to believe he loves you. <laughs> yeah. And that's the, God doesn't make it that hard. You know, here's something that we talked about right in the early part of this segment, that when Christ speaks, things happen. And so as God says, be holy as I am holy, just like he says, let there be light. He is now giving us the the power and the ability to walk in holiness. It's not something that we have to, to, to uh, manufacture on our own. It's something well, that the sacraments provide us. And, and this is that thing that is unfortunately, I mean, I, I was just actually reading and kind of criticizing a, a statement from a major um, Protestant publishing house this week, uh, where they go again and they go all the way back to the Roman Reformation and they aggressively deny the idea that in theology we call infused grace, right? Mm-hmm. But this is exactly what happens. When God says, I give you credit on Christ's passion, then he puts in you, by the Holy Spirit, the ability to do what he wants to be changed. Yeah. We'll talk about this just a little bit more in our last segment coming up right after this. Join our conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. want you to be a part of that conversation. We'll be right back after this.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Thanks for sticking around. We're talking today with Peter Epps. Peter is a coordinator of RCIA at St. Francis of Assisi in Oklahoma City. For those who don't know, RCIA is the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults. That's the way that someone who is not Catholic, uh, whether they were part of another theological tradition or whether they uh, were never a part of any church whatsoever, that's the way that they come in and enter into the Catholic Church. Uh, depending on what parish you're at, it can be anywhere from a year-long process to, to several months where that person is brought into the faith through catechesis, where we teach them about the faith uh, and and bring them to a place where they're they're ready to say in their heart and in their mind, I believe and profess all that the Holy Catholic Church believes, teaches, and professes to be, proclaims to be revealed by God. Um, and that's a big statement for a lot of folks to make. <laughs> it feels like writing a huge blank check when you're a Protestant right. to, to say that. That's just a, that's a very large blank check. For me, it was and like, okay, it. <laughs> yeah, for me, it was like, okay, uh, if I'm going to say that, I better spend some more time really paying attention to what, what these people are saying, right? Absolutely. So we've talked a little bit here, Peter, uh, about both the uh, the lax side, where I'm just going to presume upon the grace of God. We've talked about uh, the the rigorous side that says, I need to make sure that I am perfect in my own ability and in my own strength, uh, and, and in a way that really drives away any... Uh, chance of spiritual direction because we're afraid of being judged by the other person because there's no sacrament of confession. Now let's talk about the authentic Catholic faith, the way that we can walk in the middle, that fine line uh, between, and the narrow way uh, between presumption and scrupulosity. And this is one I struggle with because I I try to get away from scrupulosity. And I think sometimes that leads me to, as a Catholic, into presumption uh, mm-hmm. and so where is the fine line? Well, I mean, it's the thing I love about the Catholic faith is that it recognizes the incredible diversity of ways that God calls the faithful to walk with him. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there are people who arrange their entire lives so they can pray the Psalms for eight hours a day together. And they're right. called monks and nuns. Right. And they live the evangelical, they live these perfect, we call councils of perfection, right? Mm-hmm. Things that sound like really great things to do if God really called you to do that. And if he didn't, then you might, like you and I, get married. You might have, you know, lots of children like you do, and maybe I will someday. That we're, would be we're, nice. only, we're only halfway um, to a big family. <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I only, I only but, have six. Know, and we, we spend our time, you know, we might, we might teach English and try our best to help people think in terms of how to, to reason well in the world that God created mm-hmm. and, and not, you know, be caught up in lots of horrible intellectual fads. But there might be all kinds of different ways that God calls us, right? And the idea that somehow there's a one size fits none standard mm-hmm. that if you aren't living that particular one, is I mean that, that's that seems like a very sterile conception of God's grace and it doesn't yeah. lead to good fruit for most people. So what does then lead to good fruit? Uh, mm. what, what is that way that that my listeners, that you and I can walk uh, in a way that brings about uh, perfection, 
in the sense of well, being complete and not being flawless uh, yeah. as Catholics here in this modern world. Well, in a, in a household, right, in a family, you always have to have a way that you arrange things. You have to have some plans and responsibilities, and that's how you have a fruitful life. That's how you're able to get work done. That's how you're able to, to bring up a family. That's how you're able to, you know, keep a garden. All those things that make a life fruitful in so many different dimensions, right? Well, and the church has the sacramental economy. It's, it's what Jesus Christ himself gave us, and we have learned from and cultivated through centuries that is how his grace gets into us. It's how the life of God gets into us, and we become part of the life of God. It uh, means that we will have each our own places and roles and our own times and places that we need particular things from God, and we offer particular things to that ongoing life of the body of Christ. So, right, if I have practiced good spiritual hygiene, I'm going to go to confession regularly. What right? is regularly? Well, that's a good question. If you really discover that you feel like you just leave your last confession and you need to go to another one, that's scrupulosity, isn't it? I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's the class. I mean, that's the classic extreme form of scrupulosity, which is it, it, that extreme is really a, a, often a form of OCD, right? Obsessive right. compulsive disorder. Um, but you know, there are some people who need to trust God's grace more and not go to confession so often. And there are other people, right, who should probably not just think it's a thing they do during Lent once a year. Right. Um, you know, but somewhere between those two things at least, right? Let's talk about seeing things as they really are, right? We talked before yeah. the show about uh, nominalism, right, which is just right. uh, whatever we call it is what it is. Uh, right. Let's talk about things as they really are. If we right. believe that in the sacrament of confession, we meet Christ and he absolves mm -hmm. us of our sins and restores us to relationship with God. If Absolutely. we believe that in the Eucharist, we are nourished spiritually by Christ himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity. If, right. we, if we really believe that when we go to Eucharistic adoration, we are in the manifest presence of Christ, that Christ is actually present in our midst, how right. often will we do those things? If we knew that if I could go to that place at that time, I would be in the presence of God without me having to spend any extra effort on focusing myself, I'd be in the presence of right. God. How often will we do those things? Right? If it really is what we say it is. As often as we can. <laughs> right? As I, often as we can. I think a lot of the problems is that we, we think of the sacraments as tasks that we have to do in order to live a holy life. And we don't that see seems them. To be the case often. Yeah, we don't see them as a real way that we can connect with the mercy and the grace of God. Absolutely. And I think that's the encouragement this Lenten season, as we approach that season of Easter, that Paschal mystery of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, is to get yourself to Mass, not because it's the right thing to do, but because God will meet you there. That's all the time we have for this week. Outside the Walls is a co-production of Breadbox Media and St. Michael Radio, heard around the world on live streaming, terrestrial radio, and podcast. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. <laughs>